0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Judah Newby here on the platform of 1029 and 750, the game with Diamond 750, a page and podcast dedicated to all things baseball. Our third episode in as many weeks I'm really grateful to have the chance to talk to Michael LaNana of Baseball America. Follow him on Twitter, at MLanana. Talk about the Beavs, their 23-game win streak just snapped last night at Washington. Talk about the Ducks. They cracked Baseball America's top 25 this week. We're about eight weeks through the college baseball season. And in seven weeks from now, that's when regionals will start. And we'll see, obviously, it looks like the Beavers will get to host one and perhaps a Super after that. But will the Ducks be able to get into one as well? Right now, they're projected as a two seed in the field of 64 by Mike LaNana in Baseball America. I'm going to ask him about that and a little bit more about his role at that publication, the foremost authority on all things related to baseball in college and in prospects and at the professional ranks. Without any further ado, Mike LaNana, Baseball America on Diamond 750. Michael LaNana, Baseball America. You can follow him on Twitter, at MLanana, L-A-N-A-N-N-A. It's a bit of a... Uh, it's tricky. That's it, almost Scrabble, Michael. That's no Zepchinski, but it's right on up there. with. The, it's a little bit tricky. How are you doing this morning, Michael?
1: Doing well, doing well. I'm on the way to West Virginia uh, to cover the West Virginia series out here. This should be a fun Big 12 series, and... Yeah, otherwise doing well. Just ready to talk some baseball.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, at this point in the season, we are eight weeks into the college baseball season, and I just looked at the calendar. Seven weeks away from when NCAA regionals start. Nine weeks away from the College World Series. Are we at the point of the season now where you're kind of monitoring the impact of each series and each game and each storyline, and everything starts to carry a little bit more increased significance?
1: Oh, for sure. Definitely. I mean, this is the time of the year where we're rolling out projected field of 64s. Uh, we're on our second one right now, and, you know, we're keeping an eye on RPIs and, and uh, strength of schedule and, and, and all of that. And, and this is the time where, you know, you hope to get a little bit more clarity as far as, okay, which team is going to emerge here? Because now you're a little deeper into conference play and all these conferences, and, you know, there's still some things that are that are up in the air Around the country, particularly in the SEC, there really hasn't been a team that separated itself from the pack. And you know, uh, in the Pac-12, uh, it's fair to say Oregon State has separated itself from the pack. But I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more later on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to ask you about that kind of national landscape at this point right now. Um, I was reading some of your projected field of 64 coverage for this week, and the RPIs in the SEC. Every single team in the upper half of that conference. Seems to have a dominant RPI as well. What do you make of the SEC so far?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a dogfight. It's it's a dogfight every year. It's usually one of the most competitive conferences, obviously, just because of the talent in that conference. And you know, this year it's it's a little bit strange because there really hasn't been. Usually, there's at least one team that that kind of pokes its head out and separates itself from everybody else. And to this point, it really it's tough to tell. Okay, who's going to be the team that's going to do it this year? You know, you, you expect coming into the year Florida and South Carolina and LSU, uh, those three teams, they were all in our in our top five coming into the year. You expect those teams to, to be kind of the dominant ones, but then you're seeing teams this year like Kentucky having a really nice year under our first year coach Nick Mangioni. You're seeing Auburn, they're doing some things, they swept Florida, um, they won a series against South Carolina, so they're up there. I mean it's it's really tough to tell at this point which of these teams is going to end up as the top dog. At the moment, we have LSU as the projected national seed out of the SEC, but possible that changes. It's possible they earn you know more than one national seed. You know, obviously that's happened you know quite often in the past. So we'll see what happens. It's certainly a very interesting landscape right now in that conference.
0: Biggest surprise, either positively or negatively, in the country, has been what for you so far?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, th- I think it has to be Florida State. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a team that everyone thought really highly of. We had them number two in our top 25, and you look at what they're bringing back. It's a, a veteran lineup, you know, four switch hitters, you know, all Americans up and down that roster. They bring back the entire weekend rotation, and you think, okay, this is, this is a team that could contend for a national championship. And then you look at what they've done this year, and really, it's it's been an uninspiring schedule. You look at their resume right now, and they're they're kind of on the fringes. They're they're a bubble team at the moment, just based on their resume at this point, because they really don't have a series win that they can hang their hats on right now. So um, it, it's been surprising to see how much they've struggled. They've had some injury issues, which certainly contributes to it. But you know, you you have to think at some point that coaching staff, Mike Martin, is going to get those guys turned around, but. It has been surprising to see just how much they struggled. They're out of our top twenty-five for the first time, two thousand and nine. So that that tells you how surprising it is.
0: Yeah, that is it is amazing to see their fall so far in the first half of the season. Shifting out west, Michael, uh, the twenty-three game win streak for Oregon State snapped last night, Thursday night at University of Washington, and that series in and of itself carries some fascinating dynamics. But let's start with the win streak for the Beavs. Uh, I got the chance to be at the Arizona Series in Corvallis a couple of weekends ago. You were there as well, so you've had a first-hand look at the Beavers. Um, Can you? I'm a little bit, I don't think concerned is the right word, but I'm intrigued to see how the rest of the schedule plays out for the Beavers in this regard, Michael. I'm not sure how indicative a 23-game win streak is, in terms of representative of how good this Beaver team is. I know they're really, really, really good, but are they really the most dominant team in the country? I, I'm i not so sure. It sounds crazy after they've won 23 in a row, but but what did you make of Oregon State's start to the season going 28-2, and 12-1 in the Pac-12, and a 23-game win streak? Are they by far and away the most dominant team in college baseball, or are there still some weaknesses there?
1: Right, well, you know, to me, I, I think they're the top team in the country. Having seen them and obviously looking at the resume, what they've done so far, I mean, it was really fun just to watch, you know, their middle infield alone, Nick Madrigal and Caden Grenier, you guys who are really interchangeable at, at shortstop and, and second base, you know, to watch them do their thing, that was really fun. I mean, Luke Heimlich has been unreal as their Friday starter this year, still an ERA under one, uh, still been dominant really this entire season. And, uh, you know, it's a very, I mean, it's a team that, you know, we all thought was going to be better this year than they were last year. And, and arguably they were a regional team last year. They, they were snubbed, but you looked at the resume last year and they were right there. You know, I, certainly we had them projected in last year, but, um, we certainly thought they would be better. We, we didn't anticipate this good. I don't, I don't think anyone could have anticipated a 23 game winning streak and a 28 and 2 record starting out and then starting out 12 and 0 in Pac 12 play, but, I look at them and I, I do think they really stack up in terms of talent with anyone in the country. You know, I think they're right there with Louisville, and I, I think they're right there with TCU as well in that conversation. And I think uh, North Carolina is, is sort of entering that conversation as well with what they've done this year and the amount of depth they have, especially on the pitching side. So, you know, I think you know there's no perfect team out there. You know, every team has its weakness. You know, the one thing that I'm curious about with Oregon State going forward is. You know, Drew Rasmussen, they haven't had their ace. He's been, he's been out this year. You know, if, if and when he comes back, how do they use him? Do they use him out of the pen? Do they insert him into the rotation? And how much of an impact can that guy make? Because certainly he has the stuff and the pedigree to make a nice impact for them.
0: Do you think that's a scenario in which the Beavers are trying not to let themselves get too greedy? Like, they can afford not to bring Rasmussen back until they have to. If you were Oregon State, I guess, Mike, if you were Oregon State... How would you approach uh, if you knew that Rasmussen was healthy enough to pitch and perform? How would you approach uh, going about handling a talented but relatively delicate situation like that, knowing that uh, your team's ceiling is, you know, pretty much competing for Omaha and maybe winning it all?
1: Right, right. Yeah. You know, I would certainly, I mean, given where they are right now and the cushion that they created for themselves. You know, I, I think they would be correct in, in handling him with care. I mean, regardless, you want to handle him with care just because, you know, you don't want to jeopardize his future. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would obviously, it depends on his health. It depends on, on what the doctors say. But and it also depends on how your weekend starters are doing. At this point, starting pitching hasn't been an issue for Oregon State. You know, I could see them using another power arm really in the back end of the, back end of the bullpen. You know, if I saw a weakness with them, when I saw them, it was you know I didn't see a lot of dominance necessarily out of the back end, and I feel like you know another power arm back there could be very helpful, especially you know come tournament time. If you have a guy with starting experience and a veteran guy, a guy who can run his fastball up to the you know the mid nineties, and you're using him for multiple inning looks out of the pen in the postseason, that can be really valuable. We've seen it in the in the past few years. You know, Florida last year had Dane Dunning, who was incredibly valuable for them out of the bullpen. Virginia, when they won the national title, had Josh Sports out of the bullpen. He would throw, you know, sometimes four, or five, six innings at a time out of the bullpen. You know, it's a very valuable thing to have in this day and age. So, you know, I'd certainly be curious to see how they use him. Uh, you know, I could see it either way. It ultimately just depends on his health, but. If I were running the team, I wouldn't be opposed to using him out of the pen in in that sort of way.
0: Yeah, yeah. especially I look at some of the guys they feature in Middle Relief, and it's a couple of freshmen and Jake Mulholland, the lefty, and Brandon Isert. Both of those guys, I remember, were featured in that Arizona series pretty heavily, and Mulholland just had a great week last week. He pac 12 pitcher of the week last week. Um, When we talk prospects on this Oregon State team, uh, let's start with Nick Madrigal. We know that coming out of high school, out of Elk Grove, he uh, turned down the opportunity to be drafted by the Cleveland Indians. He didn't sign with them, 17th round selection, and he goes to Oregon State, and he's just been one heck of a player. Where is his prospect, uh, prospect status at right now, Michael, moving forward? Nick Madrigal and his chances to go pro, obviously just a sophomore right now.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, next year, I mean, he's certainly going to be in the, the first round conversation and, and a guy who, you know, you look at middle infielders and, and shortstop prospects. I mean, he's a true shortstop. You know, he's a guy who's going to stick at that position going forward. It's really just dependent on the bat. And he's had a really nice year at the bat this year. You're seeing some development there. I mean, he's a, he's just a really, really solid player. and he, He's a guy who, if he continues with this progression, and you're looking at a first round guy next year and probably – the top middle infield prospect on the board. Uh, I was certainly really impressed in my look at him, and I was impressed in my look at Caden Grenier, too, for that mm-hmm. matter. I mean, he was very smooth at, at both second base and shortstop, and I liked his approach at the plate, and I, I think he's made a nice strides this year after struggling a bit at the plate last year.
0: I had Nick Madrigal on Diamond 750 last week, and I was just joking with him a little bit about his uh, his his step in the middle of or at the beginning of his swing his little lean and how that can throw off some hitters balance and their timing, but it seems to work for him. But Michael, knowing what you know, in the scouting world, is that ever something that scouts look at and cringe a little bit on, or are skeptical of is an unconventional swing. And do they try to fix guys, even though it obviously it's working for magical, when you try to project that swing to the next level, do you think people will try to tinker with it, or do you think he should stick with it? What's your experience been like in those situations?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's mixed. It depends on how extreme it is for a hitter. I mean, usually when when anyone has kind of a funky aspect to their either their their batting stance or mechanics, or on the pitcher's mound as well. I mean, usually you do see teams try to temper that a little bit once they get in the pro ball. Um, although generally, you know, once you, you join a short season team right after you're drafted, they just kinda lets you play with what you have and then, you know, wait until until after that the instructional league to, to really tinker. But yeah, you know, I you know, I haven't heard anything in particular with Madrigal from scouts uh, about tweaking that, but certainly I think it's, you know, something that um, scouts would look at as whether or not that's something that's sustainable, whether or not, you know, that's gonna impact his timing at the big league level, whether or not he's gonna be able to catch up to a big league fastball. You know things like that. Um, it's certainly something that you hear about. I mean, the most extreme example to me that that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, DJ Stewart a couple of years ago at Florida State um, was a, a really a decorated player at Florida State, had a very very nice college career, a lot of power. You look at the offensive numbers, they stand out. But he had an extreme squat stance. He would get really 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 low right. um, in the batter's box, and and that was something you talked to scouts and. You know, it was kind of mixed. You know, most of the scouts I talked to were like, no, that's not going to work in pro ball. He's going to have to change that. But, you know, it, it really just kind of depends. So it's certainly something that would be discussed in the draft room, no doubt.
0: And what's the conversation on K.J. Harrison like right now?
1: Right, right. Yeah, no, he's having a nice year. Um, you know, he's a guy, I mean, the question with him has, has really always been, since he got to Oregon State, was, okay, what position is he going to play at the next level? And I, I think a lot of people in the industry had hoped that he would catch more um, and, and play more behind the plate, and that really hasn't been the case throughout his career. And, and in part, just because I mean, they had Logan Ice the last the last couple of years while KJ Harrison was there, and you're you're not going to play Harrison over Ice, at, you know, at the backstop. And then you know this year, Adley Rutschman, a very very talented and very polished freshman, they've had behind the plate. You know, again, a similar situation there. So. That, that's one of the bigger questions with K.J. Harrison is what position he's going to play. Obviously, you have more value with his bat if he's a catcher going forward. But obviously, this season and, and really throughout his career, he's been more of a DH first baseman type with Oregon State. But you know, certainly the bat, you know, when I saw him, he had a really nice weekend. Um, he's been swinging it well. You know, you could you probably say he's he's the top prospect on that team. Either him or Heimlich. Heimlich has made some nice progress this year from a prospect standpoint and from you know a stuff standpoint. And obviously, the numbers speak for themselves with him. So. Yeah, you know, KJ Harrison doing it, having a nice year. So the biggest question is just the defensive side of it for him.
0: Michael Olnana, Baseball America, joining us right now on Diamond 750. Okay, the Beeves are up in Seattle right now to take on University of Washington. And some fascinating dynamics with this series. Of course, not only the fact that the Beeves had that 23 game win streak, it was snapped last night at the hands of their rivals up to the north. But when it comes to Lindsey Meggs' association with UW and with the West Coast uh, regional directors and the fact that he was part of that group, that what did they leave Oregon State out intentionally, unintentionally? UW got the at-large selection last year. The Beavs were unfairly snubbed. Pat Casey hasn't spoken to Lindsey Meggs in like 11 months. Uh, michael what what do you make of this kind of rivalry and and that dynamic as the beeves and huskies meet in Seattle
1: i I mean from my perspective, it's kind of fun you know i, I kind of like when there's a little saltiness in a in a series you know it adds a little adds with some dramatics to it, a little fire, a little spark you know i I tend to like that um but uh you know <laughs> certainly uh uh, it was interesting last night just to see the way uh, the, the huskies responded you know hosting hosting the beavers and obviously getting that win and snapping that streak obviously you could tell it was something that they really wanted and, and rightfully so I mean the way they stretched out Noah Bremer out of the bullpen 134 pitches last night you know he's been a guy who's been their Friday starter the last few years but they've used him in sort of this Uh, you know, long relief kind of role on Fridays. It's been kind of interesting how they've uh, used him this year, but obviously it was was a game that they really wanted, and uh, they they wanted him on the mound to finish it off, and, you know, it was impressive. Obviously, Luke Heimlich had only given up five runs the entire year coming into that game, and they were able to tag him for three runs, taking advantage of a, a throwing error by Nick Madrigal in that sixth inning where they scored all three runs, and uh, you know, it's going to be a fun series. I, I had a feeling, I even I even told my editor, John Manuel, we were, we were talking about Oregon State yesterday, just casually in the office, and I said, you know what, I think the streak is probably going to end this weekend. Just just knowing, you know, the energy and, and kind of that saltiness in the series and uh, the bitterness there, and, and also just knowing that Washington's a good team. You know, their team, they've, they've had some inconsistency this year, but they've been in and out of the top 25, and it's certainly a talented bunch and a well-coached team, and, you know, obviously hosting them in Seattle, you you know you, that gives you a little bit of an advantage as well. So um, I, I wasn't sure exactly how that was going to happen. I, I wasn't necessarily expecting them to beat Heimlich last night, but you know, tip of the cap to the Huskies, and you know, I'm excited to watch the rest of the series and see what
0: happens. And Michael LoNana, Baseball America, joining us here on Diamond Seven Fifty. Elsewhere in the Pac-12, how about the other team in the state of Oregon, the Oregon Ducks? They crack your top twenty-five this week. And they're piecing something pretty incredible together, including a win in the series opener against Arizona last night. David Peterson leading the country in victories. And that left-hander, I had a chance to talk with him last week. Let's start with David Peterson, Mike, the the guy that takes over the ace, the Friday night role just a year after fellow Southpaws Cole Irvin and and Matt Crook depart the program. How impressed have you been? And I know you wrote a feature on both Peterson and the whole pitching program at, at University of Oregon recently. How impressed have you been with Peterson's performance at the front end of that rotation for the Oregon Ducks?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to be impressed with what he's done this year. I mean, starting with, I mean, he had that 17 strikeout performance against Mississippi State earlier this year. And then you look at the run he's been on. uh, You know, coming into this weekend, he led the country in strikeout-to-walk ratio with uh, a little over 19. And that's, you know, five five better than, you know, the next highest, uh, the next best strikeout ratio in the country. And, you know, you look at what he's done this year. I mean, the thing with David Peterson is he's always had the talent there's always been – he's always had the fastball, the 2 senior with movement, low 90s, touching the mid-90s. Um, he's always had the breaking ball. He's always been a guy that you could project, okay, he could, he could be this kind of pitcher this Friday 8th his junior year. It's just a matter of putting it all together. And as I wrote in my feature on Jason Dietrich coming over as the pitching coach his first year coming over from Cal State of Fullerton, a very, very respected coach in the industry. You hear a lot of praise for Jason Dietrich. And his pitch calling ability and his work with pitchers. You know, what he's done with, with Peterson this year is really just refine the command with him and improve his mechanics just a touch, you know, getting him, improving his direction to the plate a little bit and, you know, helping him to, you know, not, you know, leak out on his front side a little bit too much and, you know, helping him improve his changeup and, you know, encouraging him to throw a few more four seamers along with the two seamers to, some strikes and really pound the zone you know he's really helped improve his, his mindset on the mound and just his approach on the mound and, and you see the the results you know a lot of it is just natural progression just in his junior year and, and putting it together but a lot of it is with the coaching too and the hard work that he's put in so yeah he's been he's been incredible for the ducks and you know really you look at his outing last night six innings he up two runs i believe and that's you know a, a, a great outing by any measure but kind of a subpar outing you know compared to everything else he's done this year. So that tells me how good he's been this year for the Ducks.
0: How important it would be for Oregon to get an NCAA tournament bid this season after... I mean, I remember last season, they were calling Omaha a goal. They were very forthcoming with it, and the year just disappointed so immensely. How important would it be for George Horton in particular to get this team to a regional and and compete with a chance to get to Omaha after last year was uh, such a dud, honestly.
1: Yeah, I think it would be important. I, I think it's it's certainly something that that they need to do, and you know I think they're they're heading in that direction. You know, last night's win was certainly a, a nice step in that direction. Winning at Arizona against a team that ranks number two in the country in RPI and number of steps in our top 25 a really talented team obviously the, the runner-up last year in the college World street you know getting that win I think was a big statement and if you look at Oregon last year and we had them in our top 25 to begin the year and you know they had a look of, of a team that could compete for Omaha just with their pitching staff alone and uh, it's just kind of funny how baseball works because you know the year you're supposed to win, sometimes you don't, and you know sometimes it's the, it's the year later where you put it together, where, you, where you're picking up the pieces from that. I mean, we've seen it with Virginia when they won the national title. Really, they were the more. You know, you, it seems like you you see it a lot of the times. Whether it's just the the expectations of the pressures you're putting on yourselves, or just the, the lessons that you learn from the year before, um, it's just kind of funny how baseball works in that way. So obviously, the the run that Oregon has been on right now has been impressive, and with where they stand right now, they look like a regional team, if not better, if they keep, you know, continuing on the pace that they're
0: on. All right, Michael, uh, before I let you go, one of the ways you describe yourself on the Twitter profile is as a storyteller. And I got to tell the listeners that is very accurate. You're an incredible storyteller from reading a couple of the features that you've written uh, for baseball America. And one of them included the, the life of Donnie Everett and what a heavy heavy topic that was the uh, the former high school prospects ends up going to Vanderbilt uh, hails from Clarksville, Tennessee and in a tragic incident um, passes away in a drowning accident uh, with his uh, with his teammates and a couple of high school friends um, and you wrote a lengthy piece on Donnie Everett his background his childhood his parents um, his prospect potential and how that all was taken away in the blink of an eye, really. Um, I wanted to ask you, when you go about, first of all, writing something of such heaviness and such importance, um, how does that change you as a writer? Because it seems you have to identify with that position and empathize with the subject matter so much that I figure it has to change you in some way as well.
1: Right. Well, first of all, I appreciate the kind words. Um, uh, you know, about the story and uh, about the stories I've written. I, I really do appreciate that. But, yeah, I mean, obviously the story was a very difficult one to write. You know, one of the, the more challenging stories I've ever had to write, you know, as, as a journalist and as a writer. And it, it does change you. You know, it's hard not to, as you're talking to the parents, as you're talking to his loved ones and family and friends and teammates and people who grew up with and people who mentored him and coached him and watched him grow up. It's hard not to feel that emotional connection with them, and it's hard not to, you know, when they're sitting there and they're getting emotional. It's hard not to get emotional too. I mean, you're you're only human to, to empathize with, with something like that, and and obviously for me, as I was going into it, the the most important thing was that I did Donnie justice. You know, that was that was the most important thing, and to make sure that I put everything that I had into it and told a complete story because. You know, it, it had been something that I've been working on since. Really, the the thought came to my mind in in, in the fall. Uh, you know, and I originally approached Vanderbilt with the thought then, and you know, uh, obviously and understandably, there was some hesitance on, on the parents' part and you know, on the family's part at first. You know, obviously they were still grieving, and and I totally understood that. But I'm um, I'm very I'm very thankful and very appreciative to Vanderbilt and Andy Donnie's family for being willing to open up and and share his story and, you know, really just share how special Donnie was with me. And, you know, I take that responsibility very seriously. And it was something that I just wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, you'd read that story and you'd have a sense of, okay, this is how special Donnie was. This is who he was as a person. And, you know, really just understand the kind of legacy and impact that he made in his life.
0: Well, I got to say, Michael, and I'm not just saying this, uh, because you're the guest, but you, I affirm that goal that of doing Donnie justice. That was a very, uh, very incredible piece. And, um, felt like I came to know the, the kid a little bit more as well. And the man that he ended up becoming, and unfortunately he's no longer with us, but I certainly appreciated, uh, you taking the time and the effort and the energy to, to write a piece like that of that significance and, uh, yeah storytelling is such a big part of baseball as well just just in general um like I'm an aspiring play by play broadcaster and that's that's seventy five percent of the job is being a good storyteller um is that as, just as I let you go is this is that a skill that you have to develop and hone and maintain or are some people just born with natural storytelling ability what do, what do you think <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, knowing my path, it's something I've been working on for, for quite some time. You know, I don't, think, I don't think it's something you're necessarily born with. I think it's something that you, you, you own over years of, of practice and really just of reading what, what other people write and, and seeing how they go about it and really just familiarity with, you know, the narrative in, in the game and in sports and really just in life. I mean, really, because that's what, you know, the, the beautiful thing I think about sports is a lot of times, you know, the game – whatever game whatever sport it can encapsulate life and it can encapsulate a lot of the emotions and a lot of the things that you feel and it's really just a, a great platform just for humanity you know just for you know a lot of times you see all this you know all these teams and, and players overcoming adversity or you know just just this, this sense of redemption or, or really it's just a, a, a place and a, and a you know a platform for human emotion and it's just uh, yeah it's, it's important I mean because it's one thing to know, the stats in a game is the one thing to know, okay, who, who got the hits, who hit the home runs and it's another thing to know, you know, the meaning behind it and, and where these players come from and who they are as people. And, you know, that's the thing. People always talk about the future of journalism and the future of sports writing and say, oh, you know, hey, a, a computer can write a game story, you know, just based on, you know, the stats in a game. And maybe that's true, but it takes it takes another person to be able to, to find those human connections and, and, and tell a story on a, on a human level just beyond the box score. So, it's, it's an important skill, I think, to be successful in this industry in, in whatever medium, whether it's on radio or, you know, on TV or, or in writing. I, I think it's important to be able to empathize with people and connect with people in that way and be able to share their stories because, really, it's, it's an important responsibility and it's a fun responsibility, I think, and something I take seriously to be able to, to share the stories of all these wonderful people and talented people that I come across while I do this.
0: I love that. I love that. Mike LaNana, Baseball America, joining us on as our guest this week on Diamond 750. Follow him on Twitter, at MLanana, as he continues the road trip to Morgantown this weekend for <laughs> West Virginia and East yeah. Carolina. Hey, Mike, I, liked, uh, I enjoyed getting to meet you a couple of weeks ago in Corvallis. Hope uh, we can get together soon, and um, we'll have you back on the podcast as the regionals approach here in about seven weeks' time. Thanks a lot for taking the time today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: And our thanks to Mike Lanana of Baseball America. Follow him on Twitter at MLanana. Really grateful to you all for listening. Please give me a follow at and follow at 1029 game for more from Diamond 750. Each week we'll have something new. It's all baseball-related on anything and everything, connecting the sport with the Pacific Northwest region. Thanks for listening, everybody.